welcome to a special episode of Legally Bond, a podcast presented by the law firm Bond, Shenick & King. I'm your host, Kim Wolf-Price. From time to time, an issue comes up that requires a special episode of the podcast, and that is what we have today, a conversation on NLRB General Counsel Abruzzo's memo of late last week, which really shifts the landscape for institutions of higher ed on the issue, are student-athletes employees? Can we even use the phrase student-athlete anymore? To help us with this, I'm happy to welcome Pete Jones, a member at Bond in our Syracuse office. Pete is Deputy Chair of the Labor Department and Co-Chair of the Higher Education Practice Group. Thanks for joining us on this special episode, Pete. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Oh my, thank you. So as a labor and higher ed lawyer, you're exactly who we need to help us get through this today, so thank you. All right, so here's my first question. Why is the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, talking about students who play sports at academic institutions? And then perhaps also tell us, what is the NLRB for some of our listeners? Okay, so maybe that's the best place to start. The National Labor Relations Board was created in 1935 under the National Labor Relations Act to enforce that New Deal legislation, which governed the collective bargaining landscape here in the United States. And the board itself is a five-member panel that sits in Washington, D.C. Typically, the majority is appointed by the president, and so it will reflect his political party. And and historically, it's been a three-two arrangement. So three people from the president's party, two people from the other party. And that back and forth with the presidential elections um, has created historical swings in board case law, which is, in essence, how the board sets national labor policy. So what we have here is a general counsel memo, a memo from general counsel Jennifer Abruzzo, and she's really what we would consider the chief prosecutor for the NLRB. She sets the agenda for cases to be heard, but she doesn't decide those cases. So I think the best way to probably look at this would be to look at it as a recommendation of something that the board ought to take a look at and a position that the board itself may want to change at some point. Now, to your question, Kim, I mean, you, you ask a very interesting question, I think, is you know, why are we talking about sports um, in institutions of higher learning? And I think it's because the act has gone from its original sort of focus, which was, you know, industrial workplace and, you know, to try to manage collective bargaining and strikes and and sort of promote labor relations. But as the workplace has evolved over these intervening years, the act has been applied to a lot of workplaces where it wasn't originally conceived to apply. One of those is healthcare. Another one is higher ed, and the path in particular in higher ed has been very interesting in terms of faculty and grad students, and now we have student athletes. Right. There was a lot of adjunct faculty issues a few years back, weren't that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So this memo, for enforcement purposes, takes certain players from the solely student category and puts them in an employee category as people covered then by the National Labor Relations Act, doesn't it? Well, yeah, that's the biggest takeaway from the memo, but I I think it may be perhaps just a little bit understood. First of all, it's not law yet. It's an enforcement position, right? So, and this clearly states the general counsel's position that she's going to urge the board itself to adopt. And then I know we'll get into these questions a little bit later, but we're going to have questions about to whom does this apply? You know, what's the scope of this thing? And also, what's the scope of the protection? And that's something that based on how this got in front of the general counsel and how it's been previously presented to the NLRB is a little bit in flux. What is the scope of these rights that the general counsel is now asserting that college athletes should have? So then I guess a next place to go is what is sort of the immediate impact for higher ed and for these students? 
Well, I think the short headline is that the board, the NLRB, through its enforcement arm, is stating that it will pursue cases where certain college athletes assert that their rights under federal labor law have been violated. So on that level, this is very big news. But as I say, there's a lot of questions here about just how broad that's going to be when we get down to it. Yeah, absolutely. And when I asked you the question before, I used some lawyer language and and you started down this. I said for enforcement purposes, and you've mentioned that this is a position the general counsel is taking. But can you talk a little bit about there's a difference between whether this was an NLRB decision? So will you walk us through that difference a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And, And this is it's sort of complicated. And this is the part that I think might be a little bit misunderstood. The headline is the NLRB takes the position that student athletes are employees. Right. right? Uh, the fact of the matter is that it's the general counsel saying, these are the kinds of cases I intend to bring to the board and the kinds of positions that I intend to take in those cases as a prosecutor. And I think urging the board to find that at least certain college players, as the general counsel has called them, are in fact employees under the National Labor Relations Act. So. I think that's the headline kind of muddles where we are procedurally, but it doesn't muddle, at least in my mind, the urgency or the uh, timeliness of institutional response. I mean, I think we have to think today about how we're going to respond to this, not wait until something happens at the board, because the general counsel has been very clear what she intends to do and the position she intends to take. Right. So this is a great part, and we're going to get into this later, for higher ed institutions to be proactive here. I also appreciate that because I think we need a little background. This didn't come out of nowhere. A little background on this sort of back and forth. And you mentioned how when administrations change, the makeup of the board changes. We have had a little back and forth, starting maybe with the 2015 NLRB decision involving football players at Northwestern, maybe even before that. And then a petition filed by unions seeking to represent those players. Can you give us a summary of how this idea of student athlete as employee is kind of developed? Sure. I mean, I think probably first and foremost, it's an offshoot of how commercially successful certain college sports have become. But the particular history involved in the Northwestern case, which is really the, the starting point here and the point from which the general counsel takes off. Yeah, that that petition was filed, as you mentioned, in 2014. The way things work at the NLRB is they get processed at the regional level. And a decision came out here from the regional director that the Northwestern football players, at least the scholarship athletes, were in fact employees. And regional director applied what he termed at the time a common law test of whether they were performing services and whether they were receiving compensation. That decision, as often happens, made its way up to the actual NLRB, the five-member panel, and an interesting decision was issued. The board, in essence, declined to assert jurisdiction, which is kind of a maybe a, a fancy way of saying they sidestepped the issue. They said right. it's a little bit of punting, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very good football analogy. They Thank punted. You. And and in so doing, they said, you know, we're not going to decide. They said it several times. So it's very clear. They did not decide the question of whether those football players were employees or not under the act. But what they said was it wouldn't promote the purposes of the act to reach that decision because you'd have 
bargaining with a single team, assuming they were employed and assuming that that bargaining unit ultimately was certified, you'd have bargaining with a single team that is uh, playing in a conference with other teams. In this case, it was the Big Ten. And a number of the members of Big Ten are public institutions who are not subject to the National Labor Relations Act, only private employers. Interesting. Okay. Another good point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and then also within the broader framework of the football bowl subdivision, the FBS, which again has only 17 out of 125 teams participating at that point were private institutions. So I think what the board was saying was this doesn't seem like it would work. And therefore we're going to decline to assert jurisdiction and we're not deciding this fundamental question of the employee status of the players. Lies how much bigger that would be than just to than that one issue. Yeah. And so from there, it kind of sat, right? I mean, that, that was a, you know, that non-decision was in fact a decision that put the issue on the back burner, at least as far as uh, enforcement is concerned. And the two intervening general counsels took different positions on whether or not student athletes would qualify as employees. Most recent kind of going back to the idea that they're, they're not employees and the board was declining to exercise jurisdiction. So then the new general counsel comes out with this lengthy memo. It's about nine pages and lays it out, at least from her perspective, in terms of what the board should do. So that's kind of how we got here today. So how does this 2021, this lengthy memo, which I'm holding in my hands right now, how does that fit into this history? Where does that take us now? Yeah, so several things. Uh, First of all, I think it lays out an argument that certain college athletes are employees based on the record that was established in the prior Northwestern case. The uh, general counsel, Abruzio, goes through and basically states that although the board didn't decide this question, she says, I can. I'm going to read the record, and I think these, these players are employees. And from there, then, she says, well, and therefore, I'm going to process these cases if they come in front of me. And in particular, she's focused on, I think, what we would commonly view as retaliation, that players who engage in for what would employees, people who are undisputably employees, is protected concerted activity, making complaints together. That's the concerted part okay. right. about their working conditions. OK, uh, that's the protected part to their employer. And so if let's just say the football players complain about safety or complain about the hours of practice or complain about having to get up early on the weekend or, you know, whatever the case may be, in theory, if they're employees and they act in concert, that would be protected activity. And what the general counsel is saying is if they are subject to adverse treatment for having done that sort of thing, she will process those cases and recommend that the board find a violation of the act if, in fact, the record demonstrates that that kind of retaliation occurred. So that's really the big thing. And and that's, I think, very clear that she says it straight out. I think she's also inviting, and this is the interesting part, Kim, or one of the interesting parts, the board to reconsider Northwestern. And she says, nothing in that decision precludes the board from revisiting this decision in the future. And I think that she's kind of signaling there that she's maybe inclined to put that kind of case back in front of the board and see if they'll this time exercise jurisdiction and make a decision. Yeah. And it it also seems to me, you know, as you mentioned, this is not an NLRB decision, it's an enforcement position, but she's pretty clear outlining this enforcement position and things she's willing to take on. Like, Based on this memo, can you outline some of those positions? For instance, certain players at academic institutions, which players are certain players? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And I, I don't think anybody knows the precise answer to that question. I mean, the language in the memo refers to the football players at Northwestern and similarly situated student athletes. And so the point would be, I think that probably football bowl subdivision players on full scholarship look a lot like these, you know, Northwestern players, and at least in the general counsel's view, would be employees. But it, the further you get away from that, I think it's a little bit difficult to determine. Are we talking about basketball players? Are we talking about only revenue sports? And, and then if, if you get to people who are not, in fact, receiving scholarships, I think at least the theory that was put forth here, that there's some sort of compensation in exchange for work product, probably doesn't apply anymore at all. That those individuals don't get compensation and therefore this common law employee theory may not apply. All right. Okay. Well, and you mentioned this a little bit, but the protections included with the concerted activity, that could be a really broad range, can it? Yeah. You know, it's it's easy to say. Uh, yes. Labor lawyers say it all the time, protected concerted activity. But to find where the scope is, is a more difficult question. As I mentioned before, two or more employees, and of course, if they're not employees, then, you know, we're not there. Right. Two or more employees banding together for mutual aid and protection, talking about their working conditions, in theory, could satisfy this. So there's a wide range of things that can happen. And the general counsel does talk in this memo about basically student activism. But right. I, I don't really think that answers the question of whether they're employees. I mean, that's sort of, a, she says there's this phenomenon going on. And I think she asserts from that, that it ought to be relevant to the employment decision. But from a strictly technical standpoint, I'm, I'm not sure that it is, right? I mean, the question is whether right. it's an employment relationship, not how active people are in asserting their support of various causes. Yeah, this seems like it's getting very sticky in here. <laughs> and you mentioned also the Northwestern decision. And of course, there the general counsel's comment that it doesn't preclude a different determination. But you and I have talked about this. This is always the case, isn't it? And if you're an adjudicative body? I think that's right. I mean, if they had decided, I mean, this happens all the time. This is that pendulum swinging thing that I sort of mentioned before. When the board changes over a new administration comes in, in a number of areas, decisions change. They go back and forth. And in fact, there's often a dissent and then the dissent becomes the basis for the majority when the next board comes in. So yeah, I, I don't really think the fact that the board said we're not precluded from addressing this in the future really means much because had they addressed it, they could still, as an adjudicative body, change their mind. You're right. absolutely right about that. Yeah. The interesting part, too, is that she talks about the impact of misclassifying certain players at academic institutions or as student athletes. Can you talk a little bit about that? This seems a little sticky, too. Yeah. So the theory is this, and as General Counsel Abruzzo lays it out, that the term student athlete may be misleading, at least from her perspective, in that it suggests that these people are not employees. And by so doing, you're obscuring their true status. And she uses the word chilling. You know, you're, you're chilling them and exercising their rights. I think a lot of people would look at it the other way and say, these people are not employees and have never been deemed to be employees. And if they're subsequently found to be employees, the fact that we used a term that indicated our good faith belief that they weren't employees can't be an additional basis for liability. So there's kind of an element almost of a strict liability theory going on here. It can be used a phrase from other areas of the law that kind yeah. of like, if, if you're wrong about this, this is also a violation too. Yeah. Now she says... She would process that case or at least evaluate that case, but it's got some people really questioning how aggressive the enforcement might be here. 
because that, I think, at least in today's parlance, is for a lot of people a neutral term. They're students. Right. They're athletes. So, yeah. I mean, in a classroom, that's how I would think of them, right? And when we hire, we think that way. So, all these teams are part of other organizations. They're members of conferences. And then the NCAA itself is their regulatory body in a lot of ways. So, does this reach them? What's the impact there? Yeah, good question. So, the public institutions, as, as we talked about before, are not within the NLRB's direct jurisdiction. And that was a big part of that non decision in the Northwestern case, the, the, the notion that they would decline to exercise their jurisdiction. I think this memo uh, suggests, uh, well, states really, that a joint employer theory might be appropriate in that context and that the general counsel would consider bringing in the conferences to the extent that they set the rules, that all of the institutions follow, public and private, within a conference, and the NCAA itself as an, sort of a, an overriding governing body. So one way to read this is that she is suggesting a theory to navigate the destabilizing effect on labor relations that the board was concerned about in Northwestern, that if we bring in these other regulatory agencies as joint employers, that that may not be destabilizing. There's still a significant question, though, that, I mean, if you're in a conference with two private schools and let's just say 10 public schools, it's really difficult to see the two schools, you know, kind of wagging the 10 school uh, dog here. So I'm not sure that, anyway, it's an interesting thing. And it, it, this is very broad, theoretically, because right. you know, now we're sort of really pushing the boundaries of jurisdiction. Yeah, the boundaries of jurisdiction and getting into every nook and cranny of college athletics, I would think, every regulatory body. So the general counsel's memo, it seems to me like a, a strong statement that sort of alludes to big changes in her mind and the way she wants to see things going forward. What types of challenges from students could we start to see? Well, you know, I think a lot of people have used the word roadmap. It's, it's not really my word. I can't take credit for it, but I think it's accurate. And that is that uh, <laughs> if you read this thing, there certainly is a pretty clear path to asserting a retaliation theory if you've, um, you know, engaged in some activity and you're a um, an athlete that is on full scholarship in a revenue sport. So that seems clear that there's a, a real possibility there. Whether the next step would be to go beyond that and actually have a certified bargaining unit at one of these institutions. I think that's that's more questionable. Again, uh, you know, the board itself, having recognized how fraught that is, I'm not sure we'll get there. But this certainly has stirred the pot a little bit in terms of getting people, getting their imaginations going and, and getting them thinking about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So my question is, will this impact schools? Like I think immediately division one big conferences. But can this impact other schools as well? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it might depend upon the nature of their athletic programs. Uh, I know that some smaller Division three programs have a flagship program that might be Division one in a certain sport. So, you know, the, the rules could be different even within an institution. The one thing I guess we could all, the sort of low-hanging fruit is if you train your athletic departments and your coaches on responding to protected concerted activity, whether or not these are employees, then you can sort of prevent the basis for a claim by responding in a way that wouldn't constitute retaliation in any event. And the sort of standard advice in that area is to put the horse blinders on and follow your regular rules of conduct and your regular standards, kind of ignoring the activity, the, the complaining. Sometimes it's hard to do practically because right. they're tied together and, and you know people are people. There's emotions involved too. But 
That's probably the best advice you could give someone who's not sure what the scope of this is. If there is no retaliation, then at least the first part of this whole thing would not apply, right? Because there's there's no right. conduct to react to. Well, that's a good point. And I think what you're getting into there is even though this is an enforcement stance and not an NLRB decision, there are things institutions can do right now to make sure that they're sort of avoiding this sort of roadmap we're seeing. Yeah, and I think being intentional about this is probably the place to start. Asking the questions you're asking in terms of scope and coverage, once you have that as straight as you can have it in your mind, and I'm not here to suggest that it's super easy, right? <laughs> but once you get that straight in your mind, then you can say, okay, what what's our approach for reacting to it? What are we going to do? And I think one of the questions that people are going to ask is, are we going to stop using the term student athlete? Or are we going to keep using it? And another one would be, again, you know, to, to think about doing some training in terms of how you respond to, um, to certain complaints and, you know, activities and how you make sure that what you're doing is consistent with your policies and rules, irrespective of that kind of behavior, things of that nature. But the lack of clarity, I mean, I think yeah. this would be easier if we had a board decision, right? I mean, the, the, right. not enforcement, we have words that we could interpret. Um, right. We know what we were supposed to be telling clients. Like, we, absolutely. And you, I think you mentioned before, like making sure the recruiting materials, not just the training, but recruiting materials and things like that, just taking a look at those now is a good idea to be proactive. Yeah. I mean, I, proactivity is, is probably great advice in, in almost every context, but I think here especially. And it may well be that people decide they don't need to do anything, that their policies are good. That their training is good, that they don't think they're covered and they're following best practices and they don't retaliate. And, you know, so it is possible that this checkup could reveal a very healthy patient. But to the extent that you look more like Northwestern football, you'll want to be probably a little bit more careful here to just, just make sure that you're making good, solid choices. Yeah, that makes sense. Taking it seriously, being proactive. I think that's what folks can do right now as we wait to see how this all teases out. And I'm sure no one wants to be the test case going forward. Um, well, thanks, Pete. It was great to have you on today to update us on this for this special episode. Will you come back to give us a different podcast, maybe update us on this or talk about other higher ed issues? I would love to anytime. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate this. Terrific. Thanks. I really appreciate it too. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Legally Bond. If you're listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone at the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Until our next talk, be well. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is attorney advertising.